0: What a joy to see those baptisms this morning and to hear your testimonies and just rejoice in the work that God is doing uh, in people's lives. He was everything people would want in a leader, the kind of king a nation could be proud of. An impressive man who stood head and shoulders above all the rest, a mighty warrior commanding in authority, handsome in appearance, yet with a charming modesty that was winsome. He's intelligent, strong, determined to succeed, and he's the kind of guy that everyone would want to have as a friend. So no wonder, whenever he's presented, people scream, long live the king. And in case you're wondering, I'm not talking about Charles III, who's set to be coronated this week in England. I'm talking about Saul, the first king of Israel. Go down the list of qualities people look for in a leader and Saul ticks all the boxes. He's the people's choice. That's why this story we're going to hear today is so tragic. It's the story of the downfall of a man who had all the qualities. We want in a leader, except for that one indispensable quality a leader needs the most. What's the most important qualification for a leader in God's kingdom? Not good looks, not great wealth, not the ability to raise funds, not eloquence of speech, not superior intelligence, not a charismatic personality. The most important qualification for a leader in God's kingdom is who that leader listens to. Out of all the voices clamoring for his attention, whose voice holds sway over his mind and his heart, his conscience? Out of all the people he wants to please, whose opinion matters the most? Whose voice drowns out all the others? the most important qualification for leadership in God's kingdom is obedience to God's voice. And because he lacks that one crucial quality, we're about to see Saul's kingdom come crashing down almost as quickly as its meteoric rise. We're going to examine the anatomy of Saul's downfall today. What was going on inside his mind and his heart? And as we do that, We're gonna see that he's a lot like us. We're made out of the same stuff he's made out of. We struggle with the same temptations he struggled with. We've made the same tragic choices. But our story doesn't need to end the same way as Saul's. Though we have fallen, there is a way we can rise. Our downfalls don't have to be our doom, but we do need to listen carefully. So let's start in 1 Samuel 13, where we will see Saul at the precipice of his great fall. And we'll learn from this chapter that depending on our own resources is the beginning of a downfall. The tone and the mood of chapter 13 is tense. Saul is under tremendous pressure, he's barely holding things together. The Philistines are breathing down their necks and Saul's gathering an army for Israel. And Jonathan, unbeknownst to Saul, goes and attacks the Philistine outpost at Geba. And because of that, Israel has become a stench to the Philistines. The enemy is assembling to fight Israel, and they have an overwhelming military advantage. We're told in verse 5 that they have soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore, recalling God's promise to Abraham. Only here it's not talking about Abraham's sons. It's talking about Abraham's enemies. Panic seizes the people. Look at verse 6. The men of Israel saw that they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation. They hid in caves, in thickets, among rocks, and in holes in cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. They're defecting. Meanwhile, what is Saul doing? He's waiting in Gilgal, because back in chapter ten, verse eight, Samuel the prophet told Saul this: "I will come to you to offer burnt offerings." and to sacrifice fellowship offerings. Wait seven days until I come to you and show you what to do. So the troops are terrified. Some are deserting. A week goes by, and Saul is doing nothing. Maybe he's been telling the people, just wait until Friday. Samuel's going to show up. But the prophet, but, but Friday arrives, and the prophet does not. Saul has had enough of waiting. He's a leader under pressure, thinking, I can't just stand by idly while my nation's about to be invaded. I can't just sit here and do nothing. So we read in verse 9, Saul said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. Then he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he finished, While the smoke is still in the air, guess who shows up? Saul is busted. He goes out to greet Samuel. Maybe he's smiling as sheepishly as the lamb he just offered. Maybe he's thinking the prophet's going to be so proud of me for improvising a tactical solution to a desperate situation. But Samuel is not pleased. What have you done, he asks. An interrogative that reminds us of a similar confrontation after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit in the garden. And pay attention to Saul's answer in verse 11. And hear the echoes of humanity's original sin in how he speaks. When I saw that the troops were deserting me, in other words, Things were spinning out of control. I was running out of options. And you didn't come within the appointed days. In other words, give me a break, Samuel. This isn't all my fault, you know. Where were you when I needed you? And the Philistines were gathering at Michmash. I thought the Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgal, and I haven't sought the Lord's favor. Now he's spiritualizing his disobedience and His final sentence tops them all. So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. I didn't want to do it, but I had no choice. Put yourself in Saul's shoes. Can you imagine the pressure he was under? Have you ever been responsible to lead a group of people, maybe your own family? Resources were scarce, circumstances were threatening and everyone's looking to you they want you to do something to help come on you're the leader can't you see yourself doing just what Saul did finding some way to take care of the desperate situation taking matters into your own hands never imagine that obedience to God is an easy thing to do. Never imagine that obedience is always the thing that looks like it's going to make the most sense. Actually, John Woodhouse points out that Saul was being called to trust God against every instinct in his body, against every evidence, against every aspect of his experience. In many circumstances, it looks foolish To trust and obey God. In order to trust and obey God, we have to take into account something other than our circumstances. And that's what Saul failed to do. He failed to believe that God was able to act and to provide deliverance according to his word. So Saul took matters into his own hands. He did the best he could with the resources he had. It seemed the logical thing to do under the circumstances, but it was foolish. And that's how Samuel sees it. In verse 13, the prophet Samuel says to Saul, you have been foolish. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel, but now your reign will not endure. How different it would have been if he would have trusted and obeyed God's word, but it's too late now. Look at verse 14. Samuel says, The Lord has found a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not done what the Lord commanded. Saul was the king after the people's heart. He was the people's choice. But now the Lord is going to have his choice, and we'll learn more about that next week. At the end of verse 15, Saul's in a sad, sad place. As Samuel walks away, and he finds himself now on his own without a prophet to guide him. He leaned on his own resources. Now he's going to be left to his own resources. So what can we learn from chapter 13? We learn from this chapter that God doesn't need our resources to accomplish his purposes. What he requires is trust and obedience. My friend Jeff Brewer puts it like this. God doesn't need us to be his general contractors going around his kingdom telling him what needs to be fixed. He doesn't need us to be in the driver's seat to get us where we need to go. He doesn't need us to be as street cleaners, walking behind him, cleaning up the messes we feel he's making. He needs people who listen to his word and obey his voice. Well, the chapter ends with the Philistines having every visible advantage. There are no blacksmiths In Israel, the Philistines have made sure of that, so they can't have any weapons. And they can't even get their own farming tools sharpened without going over the Philistines to sharpen them. At the end of the chapter, there's only two people who have a sword or spear, and that's Saul and Jonathan. These are desperate times. But in chapter 14, there's a contrast. A contrast to the folly of King Saul, and it's in his own son, Jonathan. Jonathan. Here we meet a man who doesn't believe that desperate times call for desperate measures. Instead, in chapter 14, we learn from Jonathan that desperate times call for defiant faith. As the Philistines are closing in, Jonathan says to his armor bearer, Come, let's cross over to the other side, to the Philistine garrison. But verse 1 tells us he did not tell his father what he was going to do. And anyone who's had a teenage son understands how this could happen. So what's Jonathan's father doing? He's hiding in some cave under a pomegranate tree with a priest who comes from the disgraced family of Ichabod. That means the glory has departed. And let's scroll down to verse 6, because here we see a penetrating view of the contrast of what was motivating Saul's heart with what was motivating Jonathan's heart. I love this verse. verse uh, chapter 14, verse 6. Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, come on, let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Now that." Is faith. That's what faith looks like. It's faith because Jonathan has heard God say, nothing is impossible for me. And Jonathan really believes it. He takes God at his word, he believes in the omnipotent power of God. And he believes that God's ability to save his people is not hindered by our poverty or helped by our plenty. Nothing is able to hinder the Lord from saving, whether by plenty or by few. But Jonathan's faith is not presumptuous either. He doesn't pretend to know what God's plans are in this particular situation. He's not sure what's going to happen. He says, perhaps the Lord will help us. He doesn't demand to know what God's going to do in the future before he'll step out and trust him in the present. This is the mark of a true leader. He trusts in the Lord who is able to save, and he steps out into the adventure of faith, not knowing what God will do. And his armor-bearer joins him in this faith. I love verse 7 as well. The armor-bearer says, Do what is in your heart. Go ahead. I'm completely with you. What a gift it is when godly leaders have people who will walk with them into the fearful unknown trusting in the Lord, saying, I'm with you. That's what the elders commended this church for last week. We have seen that in this congregation over this last year of transition. People who trust in the Lord and who say to the leaders, because they trust in the Lord, we're with you. Thank you for that. Well, Jonathan sets up a sign. He'll put himself in plain sight of the Philistines. And when they see him off in the distance... He says, if they say, you stay there, we'll come to you, we're going to stay put. But if they say, come on up here, we'll know that's the sign that the Lord is going to help us. And we're going to go on up. And that's what happens. Look at verse 12. The men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come on up and we'll teach you a lesson. They think they're going to pounce on Jonathan and the armor bearer. But instead, Jonathan and the armor bearer find a sneaky way up that tight spot and they crawl on all fours and they find an acre where some of the Philistines are camped out and they pounce on them and it says that about 20 men were killed there, ambushed. Verses 15 through 23 describe the terror that starts to spread through the Philistine camp and it says in verse 15 that the earth shook and terror spread from God. When Saul's watchmen saw that the Philistines were scattering in panic, he summons his son, or, and, and he discovers that his son and armor bearer had gone ahead. He summons his army, and they all march into the battle with them, only to find that the Philistines are fighting against one another in confusion. And verse 23 summarizes the outcome. Look at what it says. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Why is the enemy fighting against itself? Because the Lord has brought terror. Because the Lord has brought confusion. Why has God done that? Because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. I want you to think about that for a minute. What would be different in your life right now if you really took that truth to heart? Would you feel less panicked about your children who maybe seem to be going in the opposite direction that you want them to be going if you really believe nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by plenty or by few? Would you be more willing to believe that God can use you, even with all your mistakes and failures, if you really believe, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by plenty or by few. Would you fret a little less about all the things you lack, whether it's financial resources or talents or good looks or strength? If you really believe, nothing can hinder the Lord by, from saving, whether by plenty or by few. Would you be more hopeful about people in your life who seem farthest from Jesus Christ right now, and would you be more confident in your prayers for them if you believe nothing can hinder the Lord from saving? Would you be more joyous about the future of the church in America if you believe God's not threatened by a culture that opposes Him, because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving? Would you be more attentive about putting on the full armor of God and entering into tough situations with gospel hope if you believe that nothing could hinder the Lord from saving, whether by plenty or by few? What if you began each day with a smile on your face because you were imagining all the ways that perhaps the Lord will help me today? Perhaps the Lord will come through in ways that I can't even expect or anticipate. Nothing can hinder him from saving, whether by plenty or by few. That's what we see in chapter 14. And you might wish that that Saul really got the message when the Lord gives the victory. You might wish he's a different man now, more humbled, more chastened by God's gracious intervention, but we see a disappointing postscript to this story beginning in verse 24. We learn that the, the, were, the troops were worn out because Saul put them under an oath. What Saul said to them is, The man who eats food before evening, before I've taken vengeance on my enemies, is cursed. So none of the troops had tasted any food. They've been out fighting in the heat of the day and they've been fasting in the process all so that their king can take glory for himself for getting vengeance on his enemies. His foolish oath puts the troops in distress. First the distress is from the Philistines, now it's from their own king. And as they go through this battle, we learn that they discover honey in the woods And Jonathan, in the midst of the battle, sees that honey, and he's famished, and so he takes his staff, and he dips it into the honey, and he puts the honey in his mouth, and his eyes brighten, and his strength returns. And when all the troops see that, they are horrified because uh, Jonathan has just disobeyed the, the command of his father, not knowing it. But Jonathan thinks, big deal. I mean, we need energy. And so the troops follow in his wake, and they end up slaughtering all these animals and eating this meat while the blood is still in it, which is a violation of the law of God. Saul recognizes that this battle is going on, and he wants to keep on fighting, but his priest stops him, and he says, Saul, maybe we better pray about this first. Maybe we should inquire of the Lord. And so they pray, and verse 37 is sobering. Look at what it says. But God did not answer him that day. God is silent. The voice Saul ignored and despised in chapter 13, the only voice that really matters, now says nothing. And in Saul's mind, surely this must be someone else's fault. can't be his own. So he calls the troops to gather, And he wants to discern who's at fault. Why is God not speaking? And they go through this process of casting lots. And in the process, Jonathan is singled out. And Saul has just said that whoever is responsible for this is going to be put to death. So Saul looks at his son. And this time, Saul's the one who's asking, What have you done? Jonathan sees what a silly charade all of this is, and he answers sarcastically in verse 43, I tasted a little honey with the end of the staff I was carrying, and now I'm going to die for this? And Saul is so completely unhinged, he insists in verse 44, may God punish me and do so severely if you do not die, Jonathan. He's about to kill his own son in his maniacal rage, the troops step in and they say, oh, no, you don't. God has helped him and through him, God has brought deliverance to us today. And they, through their plea, redeem Jonathan from his father's rage. And by the end of chapter 14, we're longing for someone else to be king, not Saul. We're longing for a king like Jonathan. He's the kind of king we need. A king who's willing to trust in the Lord even at great cost to himself. A king who's willing to go into the jaws of death itself and deliver his people from the enemy. A king who does not take but serves. A king who feeds us with honey from a rock and refreshes us with water that's alive and invites us to feast on the bounty of his victory. If we could find a king like that, we'd be just like Jonathan's armor bearer, wouldn't we? If we we could find a king that was sacrificial in love and, and bravery to deliver his enemies like Jonathan, we'd say, gladly, lead on, O king. We're completely with you. You're the kind of king we want to follow. But sadly, in this story, Jonathan will never become king because God has taken the kingdom away from his father. It's been forfeited. But John, Jonathan does point us forward. He does give us a glimpse of a much greater son who's going to come from a much more glorious father. And he's going to be nailed hands and feet to a cruel cross. And he's going to enter into battle with our enemies, sin, death, and hell. He's going to defeat our enemies. And when we trust in him, he's going to give us his resurrection life. That's what's been portrayed to us in baptism today. When you look at Jonathan and what he did for Israel on that day, doesn't it help you be a little bit more thrilled about what Jesus has done for you? Doesn't it help you in desperate times to trust confidently in him, to believe against all hope that you will share in the victory of his resurrection life forever? I mean, what could possibly keep you? From enjoying the blessings of Christ and his kingdom forever. What could keep you from that? Not your own failures. Not your own weaknesses. Not anything that anyone else can do against you. There's only one thing that could cause you to fail to experience the eternal glories of Christ and his kingdom. And that's a failure to repent and believe in Jesus And that's the last observation that we're going to make this morning from this story of Saul's downfall. It's in chapter 15 that the only ultimate failure is a failure to repent. The author of 1 Samuel wants us to know beyond a shadow of doubt why Saul's kingdom was torn away from him. And it wasn't because God was unusually severe with Saul. It's not because Saul made an innocent mistake and God decided to make him an object lesson for us all. The reason Saul's kingdom was taken from him is because he failed in the one indispensable prerequisite for being a leader in God's kingdom. He did not obey the voice of the Lord. And when he was confronted with his disobedience, he would not repent. That's why it was taken. It all boils down to this. So in chapter 15, Saul gives, gets an unambiguous command from Samuel. It's about these people called the Amalekites. The Amalekites were ancient enemies of God's people Israel. When Israel was being brought out of Egypt, the Amalekites opposed them and mistreated them. And God did not forget what the Amalekites had done. And they continued to persist in their sin. So finally, God says... The Amalekites are going to be destroyed. And Saul, you're going to be the instrument of judgment. I'm going to use you to bring destruction and judgment on them. And God commands Saul to wipe out all that the Amalekites have and to wipe out all of them. And when we read something like that, it can be pretty bracing for our modern ears. But what's happening here is not ethnic cleansing. What's happening here is ethical cleansing. They're not going to be punished because they're Amalekites. They're going to be punished because they're sinners. And and what's happening here is actually a picture of what's going to come upon the whole world when Jesus comes again. Right now, we're not called to take matters into our own hands and bring judgment on our enemies. We're called to love our enemies. But when Jesus returns, he is going to bring judgment on all who are unrepentant. That is going to happen So this this is a picture of what's coming. And Saul, it it, it seems at first that he obeys the Lord. But we know that he doesn't fully obey the Lord. He holds back some of the best of the animals. He spares their king, Agag. He's hoping what he has done is good enough. but, But what did you tell your kids when they were little? Partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. And in verse 13, when Samuel came to him, Saul said, may the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. He's congratulating himself in advance, hoping that maybe he can trick Samuel into thinking he's done everything he was supposed to do, but they're phony words, and Samuel knows it. How does Samuel know it? Well, because God had told him the night before that Saul did not obey his voice. And therefore, the kingdom was going to be taken away. But the other reason Samuel knows that Saul's lying is because he hears sheep bleeding and oxen lowing and the sound of animals all over the place. And and, and as Saul's claiming to have destroyed everything, Samuel's saying, well, then how come all these animals are making all these noises? His words are phony, too, because look at verse 15. Saul blames other people. The troops brought up these sheep and goats from the Amalekites. They're the ones who spared the best. And he spiritualizes their disobedience. We did it so that we could offer worship to the Lord. Your God, he says to Samuel. The Lord, your God. Isn't that a little strange to hear? I thought Samuel's God was also Saul's God. But now Saul's calling him the Lord, your God. Samuel reveals to Saul what the Lord told him the night before in verses 17 through 19. And the clincher is the question in verse 19. Why didn't you obey the Lord? Why didn't you obey? Look at verse 20. Saul insists... But I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back King Agag of Amalek, but I completely destroyed the Amalekites. And he blames his troops again in verse 21. And the whole climax of this narrative comes in the words Kate read to us this morning. Verses 22 and 23. Look there in your Bibles. Then Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice, to pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. Defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. What is it that the Lord takes the most pleasure in? Is it all the things we sacrifice and do for him? No. It's obedience to his voice paying attention to his word. Not all the church attendants in the world can replace that. Not all the financial generosity that you could possibly give can replace hearing and obeying the word of God. No matter how much fasting and praying you do, if you don't hear and obey him, it matters nothing. No matter how much theological knowledge you have, if you don't hear and obey, the Lord says, you have a rebellious heart. And that's just as bad as witchcraft. Because it's acting like you can be in control of God. Like you can manipulate him through the things you can do. And you can't. Well, this really pierces the heart, doesn't it? And in verse 24, for a moment, it looks like Saul's really repenting of his sin. He says it. I have sinned. I have transgressed the Lord's command and your words. But in the very next sentence, we see evidence that he's still unrepentant because he makes excuses. He says, I did it because I was afraid of the people. I obeyed them. It's like he's saying, Samuel, can't you understand the pressure I was under why can't we just forgive and forget and move on? Samuel won't give in. He solemnly assures Saul in verse 26, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And when Samuel turns to walk away, Saul desperately grabs after his robe. And as he takes his robe, he, he, he pulls on it and a corner of the robe tears away and it becomes a pathetic picture of what's happening to Saul and his kingdom. The Lord is tearing away the kingdom from Saul. And it's never going to be given back because of what verse 29 says. The eternal one of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man who changes his mind. At no point along the way does Saul ever really repent. We know that for sure when we look at verse 30 and we get this window into what's going on in his heart. Saul says, I have sinned. Please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Let me just tell you, those are two phrases that should never go side by side. I have sinned. Please honor me now. I have sinned. Please make me look good in the eyes of people. But sadly, that's often what we're most worried about when our sin is exposed. Saul's already set up a monument for himself instead of recognizing that it's the Lord who saved his people. And all Saul is concerned about right now is what he looks like in the eyes of others. The chapter ends with Samuel finishing what Saul failed to do through his disobedience. King Agag is slain as a living sacrifice in the presence of the Lord. Samuel laments He and Saul are never going to see each other again. And the last verse of the chapter says, the Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. It's a tragic end to a terrible, terrible downfall. And it's sobering for us to read. Because who among us has not failed in the same ways Saul did? Let me just ask you, have you ever disobeyed a clear command of scripture ever? Have you ever blamed someone else for what you're guilty of doing? Have you ever excused your sin by pointing out all the ways that you have not sinned? An example, yes, I looked at soft porn, but it could have been so much worse. Have you ever thought I'll cover up my disobedience by giving an extra offering or reading more Bible or confessing my sin to a priest. Have you ever cared more about what people will think about you when you fail than you do about what the Lord thinks? Aren't we all alarmed by the downfall of Saul because we can see so much of ourselves in him? Yet our downfall does not need to be our doom. God will never tear away his kingdom from anyone who repents and believes in his son because his son is the king who sacrificed himself completely on the cross. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And whoever repents and believes in Jesus, all the blessings of Christ and his kingdom belong to us forever. So what could keep you from repenting today? What could keep you from just owning the reality of your sinfulness, coming to God, making no excuses, being honest with him about who you are and what you've thought and what you've done and falling not on your own sword, but on the cross of Jesus where the king of kings was sacrificed so that your sins could be forgiven and so that your failures could be redeemed. What what could keep you from repenting like that? today. Maybe it's because you're afraid of what people would think of you if you were really honest. Or maybe it's because you don't want to face the truth of yourself. You've got such a high opinion of yourself, it it pains you to admit, actually, I have failed miserably. And I need redemption from God. But friend, I want to tell you, All of those things are obstacles from others and from ourselves. But there is no obstacle in God's mind. In God's mind, the only ultimate failure is a failure to repent. In God's mind, the path is wide open to Calvary. And if you will run to God and trust in what Jesus has done for you, if you will repent of your sin, there you will find everlasting joy and peace and life in Jesus God will never tear his kingdom from those who repent and believe in his son and this repentance is to be an ongoing daily part of our lives I just want us to think for one minute about what that means for the leaders that we should choose in the church the leaders that we want to have guiding us and directing us what's the most important quality in a leader? obedience to the voice of the Lord. Is there any leader who has done that perfectly? Only Jesus. So what does that mean for the leaders that we have over us in the church? It means that the leaders we should most desire are the ones who model true repentance in the way they live their lives. Tim Keller put it very searchingly, He said, my dear friends, most churches make the mistake of selecting as leaders the confident, the competent, and the successful. But what you most need in a leader is someone who has been broken by the knowledge of his or her sin, and even greater knowledge of Jesus' costly grace. The number one leaders in every church ought to be the people who repent the most fully without excuses, because you don't need any now. The ones who repent the most easily without bitterness. The ones who repent the most publicly and the most joyfully because they know their standing isn't based on their performance. May the Lord give us and make us such a people for his name's sake. Let's pray together.